I'm Matthew Moore, and you're listening to In His Name, the Deluxe Edition. At 11 o'clock, the local NPR station plays Fresh Air. I was driving somewhere on July 30th, somewhere between 11.15 and 11.30, and was absolutely captivated by Terry Gross's guest. He was talking about the systemic racism of white evangelicals, among other things, but I didn't catch who it was. I remember sitting in the parking lot of a store until I finally heard Terry Gross say, If you're just joining us, my guest is Robert Jones. He's the author of the new book, White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. We'll be back after we take a short break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. I immediately bought the book, devoured it, and knew that I needed to have him as a source for my thesis podcast. This book and this conversation were so instrumental in helping me articulate the points I was trying to make, and I was so grateful he could find some time to chat with me. Again, if you haven't yet, make sure to subscribe to the newsletter. Think of it like the annotated notes of the conversation. Link is in the show notes. Okay, here's my interview with Robert P. Jones. Well, thank you so much for taking some time. I know your day is really busy today, so I appreciate uh, some time. Yeah, of course. Um, If you don't mind, uh, let's just start with your name and your title, and we'll go from there. Yeah, uh, I am Robert P. Jones. I'm the CEO and founder of Public Religion Research Institute, also known as PRRI, and the author of the recent book, White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy and American Christianity. And uh, if you don't mind, give, give me just a little bit of background on your research. What, you got, what got you interested in it, and um, why have you decided to make this your career? Yeah, well, I'm a little bit of an AWOL academic. Um, I, I taught for a few years at Missouri State um, University after uh, getting my PhD um, in religious studies at Emory um, University. And, you know, really just wanted to put the work on the ground um, a little more and, you um, be able to kind of engage a little more in real time than the peer review academic process often allows you to do. So uh, came to Washington, D.C. in uh, 2005 uh, and uh, worked in a number of think tanks uh, here in D.C. And uh, really what began PRI is that I, I really was found myself looking for data that didn't exist. And finally, a little light bulb went off in my head and thought, okay, well, if this data doesn't exist, then maybe there's a little opening to create some uh, institution that might uh, generate that data um, that I'm always looking for um, at the intersection of religion, culture, and politics. Um, so, um, so in 2009, I kind of hung out a shingle and um, uh, gathered some seed money and founded PRI as a nonprofit independent research organization. Um, and uh, we're now in our 11th year. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, I noticed in your book you talked about uh, while you were at seminary that you did a revival uh, somewhere in Southern Illinois. Yeah. I'm actually from Southern Illinois originally. Do you? Do you remember? Do you remember <laughs> where it was in Southern Illinois you were at? You know, I don't off the top of my head, but I mean, it, it was um, small enough that you could stand in the middle of town, you know, and see the cornfields yes. on the other out of the edge of the town. Yes, so. I always make a joke that the town that I grew up in, uh, the welcome to sign and the exit sign were the same sign, just <laughs> one to one right. on each side. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it there was a four way stop at a main crossroads with a blinking red light. 
light. Yeah. I mean, that was the, and that was pretty much the extent of the, um, you know, traffic infrastructure in town. Yeah. Yeah. That was, may have very well been where I'm very close to where I grew up. There's a, one of the main intersections, uh, had one of those big red blinking lights. So, um, so, and I, and now I'm in Northwest Arkansas, not too far away from Springfield, Missouri, where, yeah, you, which you is where it was, yeah. a little bit. So. Your book, White Too Long, talks both generally about white Christianity, but also specifically about white evangelicals. Can you articulate what makes evangelicals different from, say, mainline Christians? Sure. Um, you know, well, when we, in kind of the sociological circles, the, the three big subgroups uh, that we usually analyze when we're looking at, at Christianity, um, and particularly white Christianity, are white evangelical Protestants, um, white mainline Protestants, and white Catholics. Uh, so the Catholic-Protestant distinction is clear enough. Uh, the, the main distinguishing feature between white evangelicals and white mainline Protestants in uh, quantitative, most quantitative research is really um, how people answer the question uh, as basically a self-identification approach that we use. Um, and, and we just ask people um, literally, um, do you consider yourself to be an evangelical or born-again Christian or not? Uh, and if they say yes to that question, then they get put into the, um, uh, the evangelical uh, category. So for you, the way that you distinguish it is, is having, talking about that born-again or uh, you know, that salvation experience. Is that kind of a, a short way of describing how you articulate the differences? Yeah, that's right. So in yeah, and and you know it's it's um and and here I'm talking about the kind of in the quantitative you know measurements. Um, this is how we uh, we we do it. So it really is literally the response to that that to that question. So if you're white, non-Hispanic, Protestant Christian, and you say yes to the uh, that I do consider myself an evangelical or born again Christian, that's the definition of evangelical. Gotcha. Um, so in your book, you start with a chapter called Seeing. Why do you think it's so important to start the conversation with that idea of seeing? Yeah, well, um, I think it really has to do with my own experience here. You know, this book is um, kind of part social science, it's part history, and it's also part memoir. Um, so, you know, I start with my own story. And, you know, if I'm and I, I think I began the book that way because it really was this process of seeing things that um, that really had been rendered invisible, I think, for my up, you know, I grew up, uh, so I don't just study, um, you know, um, the kind of white evangelical world, but I grew up in that world in Mississippi. Um, and as someone who grew up on the inside of that world, you know, one of the one of the most difficult things really for anyone is to study the, th the thing that you grew up in, right? Because it, it's, it's hard to get critical distance um, on something you've been so part of. Um, and, and so I think for me, it really was about um, trying to see with new eyes, um, you know, this world that I've been a part of, um, and, and in particular with relationship uh, to issues of race and, and racial justice. So for you, the, the seeing chapter is almost about you yourself seeing, but you, you do also include some, some space where, you know, from a historical 30,000 view that we're also able to see why the church has been white too long, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, part of it was um, uh, it's about, I mean, seeing, you know, in in the way that I'm talking about, it, part of it really is about getting new knowledge, right? Um, a, new, a new understanding of history or new um, light on, on the history. Um, you know, I began really with the story of um, 
getting some clarity about uh, really the beginning of my own denomination, right? The Southern Baptist Convention um, and, and just getting uh, clarity on something that I'd never really been faced with growing up. I mean, I, I you know, I write that it wasn't until my 20s when I was in seminary uh, that I really got the straight story that our denomination had been founded in 1845 um, to make the gospel compatible with owning other human beings based on the color of their skin, and that is uh, enslaving other people uh, and the gospel uh, being being compatible. And that was really the driving force um, that and and that word southern in our denominational uh, title um, was a stand-in for uh, the Confederacy. Mm. Um, th- I I grew up. We grew up in a general Baptist church, which is a slight, you know, step away from Southern Baptist. Essentially, the way that we were always taught the differentiation is that uh, Southern Baptist believed in once saved, always saved, and general Baptist believed that you could backslide or you could lose Mm -hmm. your salvation. You know, very pedantic and and strange thing to really get caught up on. But regardless, you know, I, I grew up with what I felt was a fairly, you know, good understanding of the theology behind what made us Baptist and all of this stuff. There's an idea that you talk about in the book that was really pretty new to me. Can you explain the theological idea behind the mark of Cain? Mm, yeah. You know, I, I mean, one of the the great, uh, really, uh, you know, I don't know, of kind of tragedies, I guess, of, of American, you know, Christian theology is um, the the edifice that was built to justify white supremacy. And, and by white supremacy, I don't really mean um, the KKK, you know, uh, version, but I, I think more generally what I mean there is just the general idea uh, that, that, that God intended uh, people who thought of themselves as white um, to be at the top of the pyramid, right? And, and to be at the top of the, um, and to, to literally be, that they were literally created to be superior and, and were superior. Um, you know, to other human beings. So, you know, if that's a commitment of your worldview, um, you you and you're Christian, you need a theological justification for for that uh, for that conviction. Um, and so there were, I mean, so much ink spilled on. Um, so how do we read that back into the creation story, right? How do we under? How can we ground it in biblical exegesis? Um, and you know, there were a number of attempts to do that, but one of the, you know, one of the kind of main ones was the this Mark of Cain story. It goes so you can read it right back into the Genesis and the very first human beings. Um, and and the story, you know, in 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 the Bible is that. Um, Cain, uh, in a fit of jealousy, kills his brother Abel, um, and then lies about it uh, to God when his, when God confronts him uh, about this event, um, and uh, eventually, uh, you know, uh, it, it becomes clear. I mean, God, of course, knows in the, in the text what 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 what's happened, uh, and and as a punishment, uh, that you know, the text says that that God marks Cain. Now, it doesn't say anything about skin tone or any of that, but what that that little passage was seized upon by white uh, theologians to say, aha, like this is the beginning of non-white people in the world, right? Was this criminal act? Um, so now you can imagine that it, so then you have two creation stories, right? One for white people that traces their lineage back to um, Adam and Eve, and one for non-white people, and particularly black people, uh, that traces their lineage back to really the first murderer 
you know, in human history. Um, and so if you trace it back that way, it's, it, it then sets up, okay, so here are white people from this more noble lineage, and here are black people who were born uh, from someone who literally killed, you know, murders his brother. Um, and, and so, you know, and, and, and that sense that, uh, and that's read into the entire race then. So, so then, uh, you know, there's a noble history for whites and there's a criminal history uh, for blacks that's read right into the biblical text. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as I listen to you tell that story, it's, it's hard for me to, to think that, you know, people, people in the Bible were from, you know, the Middle East. They were, they were from, you know, (laughs) Northern Africa. Like these people more than likely were not what we would describe as white people. So where, where does that, where does that divide come from? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it comes from Europeans seizing the story, right? I mean, that, that's really where it comes from. I mean, you know, as far back as, um, uh, you know, the late 1500s, I mean, there was a this, you know, this, uh, I guess if there's one, one theological doctrine, I think almost no white Christians know about and should, it's this thing called the Doctrine of Discovery, um, which was a 1493 uh, edict by by the Pope, and this is before the Protestant Reformation. So it, it's uh, there are no Protestants in the world at this time. It's it's sort of all Catholic, um, Roman you know Roman Catholic in the West, and um, and it was this basic edict that that is the, it is the version of Christianity that lands on American shores that declared you know that if if you travel to a new land, if you're from Europe and you travel to a new land and you find that the people there do not practice Christianity. Um, you have the church's blessing to seize those lands in the name of Christianity and whatever European state you're representing, right? Now, uh, no coincidence that most of those people were darker-skinned, uh, you know, people in the global south. Um, uh, and and this was, you know, this is again the is the the very thing that underwrites Manifest Destiny that uh, that underwrites the seizure of Native American lands as soon as you know Europeans land on these shores. Um, and the enslavement of African Americans, um, and a kind of, and really a kind of, it, it really is a, per, you know, a very arrogant, paternalistic view of the world, right? That that God has designated white Europeans, you know, to dominate the world for their own good, right? Um, and and this because of the more noble nature of, and uh, read this way, the more noble nature of whites that God just created. Uh, white people with this this superior nature, and that their job is really to civilize um, everyone else. And so there is a um, a theological justification, biblical justification for domination on the basis of race. And it's very convenient that white people found that found that out, right? <laughs> of course, yeah, right, right, right. And so so all the geography you mentioned, you know, right, that Jesus was from the Middle East, that that these early people, for all the archaeology we have, you know, and all the kind of texts would have been, you know, from North Africa and the Middle East. None of that really matters, right? Um, that uh, it it just kind of goes right by the wayside um, in the in the in the reading and the this interpretation of the text. Yeah, I want to jump ahead here just a little bit. Um, so sociologist Ann Swindler uses the language of a cultural toolkit. And this is an idea in your book that I really loved and really kind of helped explain a lot of 
kind of our understanding. The, the idea is that the tools that we have influence the way that we experience culture. In journalism, we, we often refer to that as like a framing mechanism, right? Um, <clears throat> for example, someone who has a hammer but not a drill is more likely to use a nail and not a screw. You credit Michael Emerson and Christian Smith for articulating the three main tools in the white evangelical toolkit. Free will, individualism, relationalism, and anti-structuralism. Can you explain how these tools influence the uh, influence the experience of white evangelicalism? Yeah, you know, it's a lot of uh, jargon and terminology, but I, I, yeah, I think it, you can kind of boil it down um, to s- some fairly simple things. I mean, it, it, it is the case that, you know, we as human beings always see through um, the lens that our culture gives us, right? Um, you know, we don't really see... Um, see things in any objective way. We always are bringing to it um, you know, the lens from our upbringing, the lens from our theology, the lens from our philosophy, um, and, they, and they, they really shape how we interpret what we see. Um, and in the case of um, white evangelicals, so, so I guess what they, one, thing, one last thing to say there is that they, they both make some things really, cl- so if you think about like a camera, especially one of the short field of focus, like like the portrait mode, you know, on a on a camera, um, what they do is they make some things like super crisp, right? You can see the outlines, you can see uh, everything very very clearly, and other things show up in blur, right? And I think that's the way those lenses focus. So they bring some things up to us so that we can see them very clearly. They make some things recede into the background and make them very difficult to see. Um, and so that same thing happens, uh, you know, it's happened here and Emerson and Smith are, are really, um, uh, great book divided by faith. It's a, I think a classic book, you know, in the sociology of religion, really helpful to me. Um, but, but basically, you know, what, what evangelicals have is this hyper individualistic, uh, way of seeing things. So they tend to see things, uh, both problems and solutions in terms of individuals, right? And not as institutions. That's maybe the clearest way to kind of boil all that down. Um, so with racism, for example, they're more likely to see that as a problem of a improper relationship between two people um, and not uh, something that's embodied in law or embodied in theology or embodied in an institution in some way that gets handed down generation um, after generation. Um, and in fact, I mean, you know, it's one of the biggest fights we, we were having um, in the wake of the protests this past year um, over racial justice in the country is over um, the very definition and the very existence of systemic racism. Um, and, and, and that that's because of this fight that, that I think um, political conservatives and white evangelicals tend to basically deny uh, the systemic nature of pretty much everything, um, uh, you know, and that it really comes down to, you know, these relationships between individuals. So that's, so the problem of racism is about an improper relationship between one person and another. The solution to racism then is getting hearts, individual hearts and minds uh, rightly aligned, right? And then, and then the problems go away. But what that screens out, of course, is the way that laws, customs, and other institutions have embodied uh, you know, these um, kind of racist values um, uh, o- over time. And that if we don't do anything to dismantle them, they will continue to hand those values down um, just, by their, by, just by the institution's very existence. Yeah. Um, there's a, there's a quote you have in your book where you say, uh, in the personal Jesus paradigm, Jesus did not die for a cause or for humankind writ large, but for each 
individual person. The church that I went to growing up, uh, there was a guy who would sing a special song, and I'm sure you're familiar with that idea of you have like your songs that you the choir sings, and then you have your special song, which is the guy comes up with the microphone. And there was a song that he always sang that's uh, the, the hook of the song was, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. And, and I remember that always getting such a, you know, an emphatic, like, yes, amen, kind of response, because it was this idea that like, Jesus didn't just die for humanity. He died for me and my sinfulness. Um, what view, how does this view of Jesus or salvation influence white evangelicals theology or views of systemic problems? Yeah, I heard that song. I know exactly. It's in my head right now. I know exactly the song you're talking about. Um, and and it, you're right. Like it, I think even our church bulletin, it would literally say "special" yeah. um, in the yeah, <laughs> the church bulletin for the for the solo. Um, you know, the, cue the track. Um, uh, so yeah. Uh, so I'm gonna I'll, I'll give this answer in a very personal way. Um, so one of the things I realized when doing the research of this book is I, I kind of tried to reflect back on my own kind of childhood, upbringing, adolescence to think about like how this individualism that we've been talking about really affected me. Um, so I grew up in Mississippi um, uh, and, you know, a couple of events like um, when I was in elementary school, uh, Mississippi had drugged their feet um, for more than 20 years, um, desegregating our public schools. So even though the Brown v. Board of Education uh, decision that officially desegregated uh, public institutions was 1954, um, it was not until 1975 um, that my all-white public school um, was uh, desegregated. Um, and I remember, right, the first um, you know, African-American kids showing up at my school. Now, you'd, you'd think this would be a great moment, teaching moment, right, uh, for the church. Um, for, but there was, there was absolutely nothing but silence in our church about, you know, helping all of us. There was no attempt to help all of us understand what this was about, why why the schools were changing so much. And, you know, we certainly heard the buzz about people being upset about it in the white community. How do we understand that? What's that about? Um, absolutely no context, you know, here. And and I, I think a lot about um, this, as I was reflecting on that, this line in uh, Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail, where he is sort of writing to the religious moderates, you know, in Birmingham, not to the brick throwing, you know, KKK folks, but, but really to the kind of more respectable religious moderates. And he's writing in dismay at, you know, all these beautiful buildings uh, with these tall steeples, you know, throughout and, and who are utterly on the sidelines and silent about racial injustice in Birmingham. And, and he has this line, he says, you know, who are these white Christians sitting safely behind their anesthetizing stained glass windows? Uh, you know, and and it, it, I think that that rung so true to me because um, I feel like that in many ways is what this individualistic version of a relationship with Jesus did, is that it it simultaneously gave me a very secure feeling about my own salvation, um, about my own relationship with God, while anesthetizing my conscience um, uh, to racial injustice, social justice, and things happening outside the walls uh, of the church, right? So it didn't give me any leverage, for example, our, our empathy to even think about like, you know, basic things like, well, what, what, what would it be like for, for, you know, my new 
uh, black friends who showed up at our at our at our school. What's that like for them, right? Showing up in this all white school, this all, you know, this has certainly been all white, knowing that they're not all that welcome. Um, you know, it just gave me no empathy for that, and, and no sense of the injustice. You know that had the, the the centuries of injustice that led to this being an event at all. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. Um, kind of in this same vein, uh, you quote Jerry Falwell in your book in back to back paragraphs. Uh, the first quote comes from 1965, just a few weeks after Bloody Sunday in Selma, Alabama, where he essentially says, "Preachers are not called to be politicians, but to be soul winners." And then in 1976, his tone changes, and he says, quote, The idea that religion and politics don't mix was invented by the devil to keep Christians from running their own country. What changed for Falwell in that time frame of just 11 years? Yeah, well, what's remarkable about this is, you know, I think when you hear about Falwell, a lot of people think about abortion or uh LGBTQ rights, uh, you know, th- those kinds of things. But it's it's the reason I included those is because it's also so clear that what was motivating Falwell in both of those instances was race, right? And, and upholding a kind of white supremacist worldview and a segregated society. Um, so the first one, right, as you said, he's speaking Rapture Bloody Sunday. So there's no uh, at the time, um, you know, that, that quote often gets lifted out of context, but at the time, there'd be no mistake that that his target in saying, uh, you know, preachers should stay in the pulpit, that he's targeting Martin Luther King Jr. and delegitimizing the work he's doing, organizing for civil rights. Um, and similarly, um, you know, when he gets in the 70s and he's really beginning the, the Christian right movement, the thing that moves him uh, into public space is an abortion. It's not LGBTQ rights. Um, it is, in fact, um, the fact that Bob Jones University, Bob Jones College at the time, was um, uh, in trouble with the federal government uh, because they had a, a um, and were about to lose their federal funding uh, because they had a, a policy against interracial dating on their campus, and that ran afoul of civil rights laws. Um, right, and and Falwell was mobilizing to protect that policy against interracial dating and to, and to protect the ability of white Christian colleges to remain segregated. Um, and, and that's really what moved him into public life. But that's not the story, right, of the Christian right that you that they tell about themselves or really that is the one that most people understand today. Yeah. And that's kind of the that's kind of the thrust of my whole thesis here is is this idea that we've had this this overwhelming, you know, years and years of narrative that that Roe versus Wade was the was the pinnacle of or you know, was the was the moment where folks like Jerry Falwell and the moral majority said, like, this is something we can get all white evangelicals to stand behind but you know that that's not really the case right yeah no right if you go to the southern baptist convention um you know minutes and track all their resolutions which you've probably done yeah um you you will look in vain until what 1979 i think is the first mention of of abortion yeah yeah Um, i interviewed dr randall walmer uh recently and he you know he's a, a huge proponent of this this idea as well let's get into some of the data so so a good portion of your book is talking about you know the sociology and and the studies and and the polling behind Behind what's happening, um, kind of the what motivates white evangelicals and white Christians generally. Uh, you talk about cultural protectionism, and you say that 71% of white evangelicals believe that the American way of life needs 
Oh, I lost my place. 71% of white evangelicals believe that the American way of life needs protecting from foreign influence. What would lead white evangelicals to this viewpoint? Yeah, well, if, if you've got the Jerry Falwell quote uh, still in front of you, um, reread the end of that quote, the very end of that second quote. Yeah, he says, uh, the idea that religion and politics don't mix was invented by the devil to keep Christians from running their own country. Yeah, so I think that last part, right, to keep Christians from running their own country. So if you really think about that clearly, that's a, that's a declaration of it's an assertion, right, of ownership, an assertion of power. Um, you know, the the very idea that he could just assume that a statement like Christians own, you know, Christians should own their own country. Now, what does he really mean by that? He's he doesn't mean African American Christians uh, in that statement, right? He means white Anglo-Saxon Protestant Christians, uh, you know, should own their own country. Um, and and I I think that really, you know, we have in that statement. We have in the other statement, um, you know, that you that you just read in, in the public opinion survey, um, a real, there's a real through line, you know, there, that, and that one of the, um, you know, another another uh, thing right along these lines that we found and we've consistently found is if you ask, um, you know, Americans um, whether the country has changed for the better or changed for the worse since the 1950s. Um, uh, you know, white evangelicals, uh, you know, more than seven in 10, uh, actually it's three quarters of white evangelicals will say it's changed for the worse since the 1950s, right? Well, what's magical about the 1950s? Well, it's uh, pre-civil rights. It's a time when white Christian dominance really had gone, was still largely unchallenged um, in the country. And I, I really think that th- that this idea um, that white Christians own the country is 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 the the very it's at the heart of um, the problems that we have in the country today really um, and and it, it, it we're in this process of the country's become more diverse um, and white Christians insisting that they own the country um, and we even hear it in, in the the appeals that, that President Trump made on January six um, right um, before the riots you know that um, if you don't fight now you won't have a country anymore America as you know it will be over right encoded in all of that is this vision of a kind of white Christian America um, that white Christians should stand up and defend and and defend with violence if need be right yeah and it, it goes to this idea of Christian nationalism this idea that yep. that that America was founded as a Christian nation. And, you know, the further that we, the, the further that we get away from having Christianity as the civic religion, you know, the more, the more we're going to have a country in decline or you know, that sort of idea. Right. Yeah. And, you know, that term, I mean, you know, we, we talk about, well, I think terms are important. Um, you know, I, I, I think unless we put the word white in front of Christian yeah. nationalism, yeah. we're really missing what it's really talking about. I, I, I'm, I, I often bristle a little bit if it's just Christian nationalism. We're really not talking about African-American Christian nationalism. We really are talking about white Christian nationalism that has this sense of ownership, you know, of the country. Yeah. Um, perhaps the most damning piece of research that is in your book here is what you call the racism index. Can you describe the objectives of this research and, and some of the findings, some especially kind of around this idea of white, white uh, evangelical Protestants? Yeah, well, you know, the book is, like I said, it's a lot of history. It's partially my own story, my family's story, kind of, you know, in the Deep South, and I'm kind of among the white evangelical world. 
Um, but but so it goes backwards in that way. But I wanted to bring it forward. Uh, Two, into really looking at contemporary public opinion data, because the real question is, okay, well, the history is pretty clear. Um, How is this still with us today? Right. Is is the real question there. And so I tapped um, uh, some fairly large public opinion surveys done by PRRI um, in 2018 for the book. Um, and uh, and try to figure out like okay what what does it look like if we really look particularly at um, perceptions of uh, systemic racism uh, uh, if we look at uh, symbols like the Confederate monuments and Confederate flags uh, if we look at economic uh, like what do people think about um, black economic mobility and things that hinder it uh, so I was trying to get a very broad spectrum because one of the challenges of course is. Um, you know, trying to measure, uh, you know, people holding racist attitudes is a very difficult thing on a public opinion survey. Um, you can't just kind of ask one question and get get the answer. So, um, so I developed a um, what I call a racism index that's that's based on fifteen different questions that kind of range across a whole a, a pretty broad spectrum of questions. Um, it was also notable that these questions scale um, very tightly together. That is, they're highly, highly correlated um, with, with each other, which, which tells you with some confidence that they're measuring very similar uh, kinds of things. And, you know, and then I basically scored them on a scale of um, you know, zero, to, zero to 10. Um, and, uh, and then you could look at with 10 being um, holding the most racist you know, views. And then I wanted to look at the white Christian subgroups um, that we began the conversation with, so white evangelicals, but also white mainline Protestants and white Catholics. Uh, and then I wanted to also look at whites who are not Christian, right? Whites who claim, in fact, who claim no religious affiliation um, in order to see what was, what's the difference then among whites between those who are Christian and those who are not. Um, and then lo- also look at African-Americans just as a benchmark. So in the book, just kind of boil it all down, um, you know, I'll give you one question um, that, that and, and then give you the index. So one question in the is really about the um, the killing of unarmed African-Americans by police. Right. Something that the protests for racial justice were um, really about this past year. Um, and there we find this kind of pattern where um, white evangelicals, white mainland Protestants and white uh, uh, Catholics are all more than 20 points, about 25 points more likely than whites who are unaffiliated to say that these are just isolated incidents and that they're not connected in any way uh, to unfair, kind of a pattern of unfair treatment of of African-Americans by uh, by police. Um, and we found that pattern repeated over and over again. So when we scored it on the composite index, um, we found that um, white evangelicals scored eight out of 10 um, on the racism index. But perhaps surprisingly, um, white mainline Protestants basically scored seven and white Catholics also scored about seven um, out of 10 on this index. And if you look at whites who are not uh, Christian, they only score four um, out of 10 on this index. So, you know, if you one way of kind of boiling it down and say, well, if you take your average white person and you add Christianity, it moves them up the scale, um, you know, toward holding more racist attitudes rather than less. Um, and then it did some, some other, you know, some other analysis as well, but to kind of make sure that these weren't spurious uh, correlations. But and they, they did held up after a number of controls are introduced in the model. So it's not about, about being Republican. It's not about um, a gender, education level, region of the country, all those things I controlled for. And this independent relationship between identifying as a white Christian uh, and uh, and then holding more racist attitudes really holds up. 
uh, in a very sturdy way. Yeah, yeah, really, really unbelievable. It's not though, right? I mean, like when you come into this, you know, it's easy for me to say, like, man, that's unbelievable. But when I look back on it, I think, no, it's it's not terribly unbelievable. It's 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 probably more disheartening. Is probably a better word yeah. for it. Um, does that sound right? Yeah, no, it's it's. I mean, I'm the, the word that I mean. I, I think that I, I would use about my own. Uh, you know, and I look at these numbers a lot, right? In my day job. So it, it, but, but even so when I look, when I really distilled it out in the first time that I really saw these patterns and how strong they were, um, I, I mean, the word that came to my mind was like devastating, right? Mm. That that's the word that came to my mind. Um, you know, yeah. as somebody who cares about, uh, the future of, um, uh, of the church and, and the, in the future of, of Christianity in the country, um, yeah, it's disturbing, devastating, you know, um, uh, yeah, a lot of those, a lot of those words, um, it, it, it was, it was quite stunning really to see those, um, yeah, to see those, those numbers and, and just how, how they stood up. Uh, you end your book with a chapter called Reckoning and in it, you quote the Southern Baptist seminary president, Al Mohler, who says, uh, we must repent for our own sins. We cannot repent for the dead. What is your reaction when you, when you hear this statement that he makes? Yeah, you know, in that section, I, I came up with this term. I call it the white Christian shuffle. Mm. Um, you know that uh, where you'll hear, um, and it's, it's a real pattern I've seen a lot when white Christian leaders um, try to respond um, to this. You know, they'll they'll take two steps forward, um, and you'll think, oh, they're actually going to address you know this issue, and then before they're done, they've taken at least one, if not two, steps fully back. Um, and, you know, and that statement, I think, connects directly to this conversation we were having earlier about individualism. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's a it's a pure denial of how these things live in institutions. Um, so to say, yeah, if I if I individually have done something wrong, I can apologize for that. Um, but I can't apologize for people who uh, came before me. Um, but, you know, it it it, it even even if I grant uh, uh, you know, a kind of goodwill uh, on Mueller's part, which I, I think is is generous of me um, uh, on on this front. Uh, you know, it, it just is that representation of and, and and you know, it's it protects white interest, right? To say that um, it, it's convenient, as you say, because then you don't have to deal with the fact that uh, there are seminary buildings on on Southern Seminary's campus named after slave slave owners, uh, some of which Mueller named himself after uh, slave owners since he's been there. They're not, you know, they're not way, way back, uh, you know, names. They're names that have been in the 90s evoked um, and put on buildings uh, that recently. Uh, so, you know, I, th- I think it's a kind of convenient excuse, really, to not deal with the harder um, with the harder questions, but it has it has a strong pedigree inside those evangelical circles because it relies on that kind of theological individualism, you know, that we talked about earlier. Yeah, uh, I want I want to connect this some to to President Trump, or you know, uh, my my research is essentially leading up to the 2016 election, so he technically wasn't president leading up to this. But yeah. what do you think explains uh, why socially conservative white evangelical voters would support? Trump for president. It's a man who has five children from three different wives, you know, it claims that he has nothing to apologize for. Um, just time and time again shows real no remorse, no real values or, you know, morality towards Christianity. Why would somebody who claims to be a white evangelical support him for president? Yeah. Values voters, right? 
Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think it, it start particularly because, you know, in 2004, in that presidential election cycle, I mean, there was a very concerted effort, um, right, to kind of brand evangelicals to kind of claim the space of being values voters. Um, there was uh, websites uh, by um, uh, James Dobson uh, and the Southern Baptist Convention. One of them had IVoteValues.com. The other had IVoteValues.org. And there was kind of like coordination. Uh, they had a, a, a semi-truck driving around the South registering people to vote with IVoteValues.com on the you know uh, thing on the side of it. So it was a very intentional marketing plan um, that has been utterly abandoned. Um, you know, w- uh, when, when Trump uh, rose, uh, you know, uh, to the top of the ticket. Um, and, you know, I think the, um, the real explanation here is it's just a straightforward transactional move um, that put principles to the side and power to the center um, is the best way of understanding. I, I, I wrote back in 2016 that, you know, one way of understanding this is that Trump had, had just wholly converted um, uh, white evangelicals from being values voters to being what I call nostalgia voters. You know, again, kind of hearkening back to this 1950s America where they held more power. And that's the way he spoke to them on the, on the, on the stump and on the trail. He, he would say things, look, if you don't vote for me now, the country's changing so rapidly, you'll never see another candidate like me again. And he, he literally talked about himself. You know, he talked about uh, uh, as a wall, between them and the changes that they didn't want to see in the country. Um, so, you know, he talked a lot about building an actual wall on the border, but, but, he, but he talked about himself really as a, as a wall of protection against the changes in the country and, and that he was the only thing standing between them uh, and these changing demographics in the country. Um, you know, in my, in my uh, former book, I, The End of White Christian America, I talked about these demographic shifts in the country. Um, and so there was there's something he's, he's certainly tapping, right, that um, the country has moved from being a majority white Christian country to one that's no longer a majority white Christian country just since 2008. Uh, so when, when Obama was first running for president in 2008, the country was 54 percent white and Christian. Uh, by the time the Trump-Clinton election comes around in 2016, the country's 47 white and Christian. So it had crossed this threshold from being majority white and Christian to no longer majority um, white and Christian. And the number today is 44, right? So it's just continued um, to, to, to move. So there is this sense that um, there is this cultural loss, there is this demographic change and loss if you're a white evangelical Christian that's real. Um, you know, white evangelical Christians only make up 15% of the country today. Um, that's down for 21% in 2008. So just, just even that group has shrunk. Um, but as they shrunk and as they've felt their power slipping, I think it has led them uh, to this kind of desperate, um, you know, move that's, that's purely transactional um, and that is, you know, you know, desperate times, uh, right? Um, and I, I think that that really is what mostly explains is it's kind of a shotgun marriage under duress, um, you know, that, that you really see between white evangelicals and Trump. Yeah. I have two more questions for you if you have time for it. First question, uh, your research through PRRI notes that the number one critical issue for white evangelicals in the 2020 election was abortion. Knowing what we know about the individualism tool and the cultural toolkit, where does this idea of, you know, abolishing abortion 
fit in with this anti-structuralism or this idea that, you know, systemic issues should are not what drive white evangelicals? Yeah, it's a tricky thing. So on the one hand, you're right that we when we ask people just about their, um, uh, you know, what, what things were kind of most important to them uh, right ahead of the election, um, uh, abortion was up at the top of the list for white evangelicals. We, but here's the thing. We also had some, uh, and, and they're, of course, highly opposed uh, to the legality of abortion. But uh, we had another question, though, where we asked more specifically um, whether um, uh, you would uh, absolutely not vote for a candidate, right, who um, who didn't share your view um, on abortion. And there we only found really that a th- it's only about a third of white evangelicals who say that it's a it's a litmus test deal breaker issue, um, right? So even though it ranks way up here, um, it's only about a third who say, I will absolutely not vote for a candidate who doesn't agree with me um, on this. Um, so, I, you know, I think, so I've take that, other, other survey data, it's certainly an important issue. Um, uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I think, I guess I'm not convinced it is the driving issue um, in the way that if you only looked at that one, uh, that one issue by, by itself. Um, but to kind of get to your other you know, your other question here, I mean, you know, it, it's it's interesting because you know you would think on the one hand that um, that that one way at least an individualistic view could go is a more libertarian yeah. uh, slant here, right? Yeah. Where you just say, okay, look, live and let live. I know I'm not going to have an abortion if I am strongly opposed to it for religious reasons, but what everybody else does, you know, whatever. But I think that runs right into. Um, the the this ownership idea right I think that's where it runs aground and so I, I think that there is this sense that it's our country we own the country the country should reflect our values um, that I think is still you know at play there that kind of short circuits the libertarian route um, that that might go yeah that's fair um, what can the election and presidency of Donald Trump tell us about the future of the Republican Party. Yeah, wow. We're all reading the tea leaves on that one. Um, I have to say, um, uh, it's it's challenging. I mean, I, I think when we have asked people, um, even post election, we've done a, a couple of surveys post election. Um, you know, whether they're um, we, when we ask Republicans whether they are um, uh, more likely to see themselves as a follower of Trump or of the Republican Party, uh, for example, we have nearly half saying more a follower of Trump. Uh, than the Republican Party. So there's a clear schism, um, you know, in, in the party here um, that I, I think we're going to have to kind of wait and see and how it how it plays out. Um, you know, we, we've seen some evidence of um, people leaving the Republican Party, particularly after the January 6th riots. There's, there's like concrete evidence of people who are registered Republicans uh, changing their registration, either to independent or Democrat in, in the wake of those uh, riots. Now that's a short-term response, whether that'll stand up two years from now or four years from now, I don't know. Um, but one thing I can say is, is this, that um, the biggest problem uh, that I see in the data that Republicans are going to have um, down the home stretch is with young people, um, right? Uh, so, I mean, really under the age of 40, um, if you look at any, any of the exit poll numbers, um, you know, they just get clobbered uh, every, you know, either at the state level uh, or at the, um, or at the national level, um, and I think it's because, you know, there, there's been a kind of anti-gay, anti-immigrant, um, you know, lead uh, and, and now a kind of racist lead. I mean, we, we in our last poll, we had um, more than six in 10 Americans saying that they think um, Trump's speech and behavior has encouraged white supremacist groups. 
Um, and that, those numbers are even higher among young people. Uh, so if, you know, if you've got a, um, young people who are supportive of LGBT rights, um, have a much more cosmopolitan and diverse social network where they're, you know, they know people who are undocumented or in mixed immigration status families. They know people who are African-American if they're white, um, unlike their parents and grandparents. Um, you know, a, 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 um, uh, a platform that leads with opposing gay rights, um, uh, being very anti-immigrant, uh, and being tone deaf um, or even in denial about systemic racism is not a formula for success with a growing, you know, younger generation in the country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it feels like the 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 party is kind of built on uh, a lot of elements of exclusion that you have to fit a certain mold to be able to 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 see yourself. Uh, and, and some Republicans may, you know, you hear Mitt Romney saying things like, you know, the Republican party is a big tent, uh, but he yeah. says the tent's not big enough to fit someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene in that tent. So you start right. to wonder, you know, are they, are they chopping off elements of that tent to make it smaller and smaller to fit less yeah. and less people? And, and today, the other thing to say, I mean, today the, the Republican party is two thirds white and Christian, right? It's a very yeah. homogeneous uh, party um, and and that it's gotten more homogeneous over time. So uh, you know, as the country is getting more diverse, so that also is not you know a great trajectory with a more increasingly diverse country to have an increasingly monolithic uh, uh, party that is the party of the shrinking proportion of the population. Yeah. Do you think Donald Trump's going to run for president in twenty twenty four? Boy, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I I have no uh, no way I'm going to speculate on that. Um, we'll 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 write it out and see. There you go. All right. Uh, thank you so much for your time. I really yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, of course. It. Your book has been really influential and uh, super helpful in my research. So thanks for taking part in it. I appreciate it. All right. Have a good day. Thanks. You too. Thanks for checking out the deluxe edition. Make sure to subscribe to the newsletter. You can do that at the link in the show notes. Our theme song is Apophenia by Ross Christopher. Only two more episodes left. Next week, I talk with a fellow Razorback, Angie Maxwell. Thanks for listening.